right. This is the New Glarus Brewing Podcast with Dan Carey. I am Scott May. Our brewmaster, Dan Carey, is busy, busy, busy doing brewmaster stuff. I'm guessing planning out the, <laughs> the next uh, few months worth of releases as we get out of our 30th, what has been a great and successful 30th anniversary year and into our 31st year, which does not have as round a sound to it. But 31 years is still, I, I, I still think this anniversary of 31 years is going to be just as epic. I'm here today with uh, a part of our projects team and uh, engineer engineering team, uh, Chris Heiberger. How are you doing today? Hey, Scott. I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm very, very excited to talk to you because uh, every year, or for the last two years at least, um, I had to give a presentation at the employee party and you had to give a presentation at the employee party and yours usually uh, precedes mine. And it's both awesome and scary because you and Jason are a lot funnier than I am. And you guys have a very like nice rhythm with the way you guys can present some, what can be some dry kind of material when you're talking about engineering projects, when you're talking about expansion projects and, and things like that. So I guess my first question for you is, uh, one, how much forethought are you guys putting into those presentations and, and how you guys actually put put them together? And two, um, the last two presentations seem to have highlighted bathroom projects and and why why is that well as far as the projects uh they're pretty ingrained in us because we've been working on them for the last year or multiple years yeah so when it comes to building like a deck to present to the greater uh team uh that doesn't take too much time and given the fact that we've lived it for the last however long it's pretty easy to speak to it yeah as far as the bathroom scott um we have to give the people what they want so keep it simple. <laughs> and usually it is um, more space at the end, as it were. <laughs> well, there, it's stuff you wouldn't think about, but I feel like it's funny. Like when you start like a business and it, it's growing and things are going well and it's like as you're expanding, one of the things like it wouldn't have ever occurred to me to think like, oh, yeah, as you take more people on things like adding bathrooms are going to become a thing eventually. You know, these, these sort of quality of life uh, additions that seem to happen around here on a fairly regular basis. And I know you, you, you came to us, uh, what, two years ago now, three years ago, three years ago in October. And, um, and, and where were you at before that? So most recently I was working in Chicago at Lagunitas. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And then prior to that, I spent uh, six years out in Los Angeles working for Miller Coors. Gotcha. And then my uh, first stint uh, after I left college was uh, out in Atlanta, Georgia, making plastic bottles. Well, let's start there then. So what did, what did you go to college? Where, where, first of all, where did you go to college and, and what did you study? So I was born, raised, and educated in the great state of Iowa. Gotcha. And I went to a, a junior college to uh, obtain a, a drafting degree. Mm -hmm. I was a little bit, uh, may, I, may I say, like confused or didn't really know what direction I wanted to go coming out of high school. Yeah, I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then I opted to go uh, to the University of Iowa mm -hmm. and I studied mechanical engineering and I passed. Nice. So that was pretty cool. I enjoyed that. And then that took me uh, uh, to, start, to start my career down in Atlanta, Georgia. What kind of plastic bottles were you making? Are we talking like uh, water bottles or like uh, Jerry, like gas jerry cans or, or what was what was the process there like? So some of the projects that I worked on is uh, like your Clorox wipes bottle, the uh, okay. wipe cylinder. Oh, the thing when you and you pull them out. Yeah, I love those. 
And then another project uh, I had a heavy hand in was uh, like a, a toilet bowl cleaner with a little angle neck. Yeah. So, so that was uh, installing a few blow bowling machines along with seven robots to completely automate the lines. So that was a, a great experience for me. Well, what I really like about talking to people who studied like mechanical engineering or structural engineering or stuff like that is, is when they get these jobs like out of, out of college, it's always something really kind of interesting that you would never think about. Like I got a, I got a buddy who uh, studied uh, engineering at UW and when he, I think he's still there, but his first job out of college was just at some firm in Madison. I say, Oh, what do you do? And he goes, well, we're contracted by the military and they send us stuff and I put it on a table and I shake it till it breaks. Then I figure out why it broke and tell them why, why it broke or how, or how much you can shake it before it breaks. And I thought like, it, it would never dawn on me that the world needs someone to break things like that just to figure out like where, where are the fail points at? And that's why, you know, engineers sort of occupy a, a, a unique space in my imagination uh, just because I do not possess those skills when did you know you kind of did like you could put stuff together, take stuff apart? Like how did that manifest when you were a kid? That's an interesting question. Uh, well, uh, back when I was in my youth, uh, I had a garbage pail full of Legos. Gotcha. And I played with those or built things with those uh, constantly. And then as I, uh, uh, grew and got more into my teens, I'd be down in the basement tinkering with uh, random parts and taking uh, contraptions apart, putting it back together and building other items. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think those were a pretty good uh, precursor to where I was going to go. Yeah. And then also just being around my parents, uh, they're both uh, handy and doing things around the house and lending a hand um, kind of got me onto that path. Gotcha. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. There are, there are like a couple different kinds of kids out there and the Lego kids, I'm, I've always like been jealous. I, they always, even when I was a kid, I was, I found them so frustrating and, and I could never do them. I didn't have like the, the hand, I didn't have like the fine motor skill for it when it got to like the smaller ones or like actually building stuff. And, uh, my son had his, uh, fourth birthday not too long ago and someone gave him a Lego police car and he's like, dad, you have to help me put this together. And I was, I was like, I was like sweating. Cause I'm just going back to my, you know, those, those like my youth and going, oh, I never knew how to do this. And I, and I put one together and I put it together like fairly easily. And I was like, oh, I just had to turn 40 before I under, understood Legos. <laughs> So that's why I'm not an engineer, I, I, I think. <laughs> that must be the case. That must be the case. I think if you can put Legos together when you're like between five and eight, they should just, you know, kind of do what the Germans do, just like shuttle you off to the special engineers, like elementary school. It's a good first step. That's for sure. Here, here. Did he, did he pass the Lego test? <laughs> so how did you go from making angled uh, toilet cleaner bottles to, to Miller Coors? Well, that because that seems like a, there seems like there might be like a cavern in between those two points, right? Uh, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Um, just out of the blue, while I was living in Atlanta, I was uh, contacted uh, by a headhunter mm-hmm. who said there was uh, an, a role open at, at Miller Coors out in Los Angeles. Yeah, and it really didn't take me too long to uh, jump ships. Uh, I really had a, a great six years uh, working in Atlanta. I had uh, a couple of great mentors there. Gotcha, but. Um, Producing something that ultimately ends up in a landfill yeah. or some of that nature wasn't quite uh, keen for me, mm-hmm. uh, but brewing beer, packaging beer uh, out in California underneath palm trees and on the beach, that sounded right up my alley. Yeah. And when you think about 
beer as a, as a sort of a commercial product and the, the sort of the packaging that comes around it. Now I understand like, uh, you know, some of the six pack holders or whatnot, but most of it seems to be fairly or can be fairly eco-friendly, right? Like cardboard recycling, glass bottles, aluminum cans. And then the product itself very rarely, I guess, gets, goes to waste. (laughs) Even though waste beer can be reused in other means, right? With the distillery and things of that nature. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the, the byproduct can be feed and, you know, sort of from uh, tail to snout, you can you you can use everything in in, in a brewery. Sure. So, what were you making, um, or what was sort of uh, your role at uh, at Miller Coors? What were you guys making at that time? What was what were you doing? So, at Miller Coors, I was out there for about two months when it merged with with Miller when Miller merged with Coors. Gotcha. So you were like you were there for that. Yeah. The 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 docking of the great ships. <laughs> yes. So uh, I started my career there as a maintenance planner on the can line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that time, I believe it was the fastest can line within the Miller Coors eight breweries. We were producing uh, silver bullet cans at uh, 2050 cans a minute. Wow. So it was pretty, pretty that, amazing. That's pretty, that's quick. Yeah. So I was a, a frontline supervisor, a maintenance planner uh, for a couple of years. And then I switched roles to a uh, production supervisor for uh, covering the palletizers and keg line. Mm-hmm. I had a team of uh, salary and hourly. And then my final uh, stint at Miller Coors out in Los Angeles was as the uh, brewing manager. Gotcha. So for me, it was really great to be able to switch from the packaging side, which I had done for the most of my career, to the process side mm-hmm. with the brewing beer. And I learned a tremendous amount there. And while in that role, I had a few uh, salary reports and then along with a number of hourly reports that we maintained and kept the equipment running for operations. Gotcha. And one thing that Dan has uh, sort of commented on in the past, uh, and he worked, I believe, for Anheuser, Anheuser-Busch in, in Colorado, is that when you work for, you know, when you work for Miller Coors or you work for Anheuser-Busch and people can say what they, they, they want about those, those two companies, but the fact remains is they are breweries that are putting out large amounts of consistent beer. So when you switch to sort of the production side of things, was was that as apparent to you as it was to, to Dan? Sort of like the, you know, the fortification, uh, f- like Ford F O R D, like assembly lineification of that brewing process. Like how how was that learning on, on sort of you know learning brewing on like you know what is essentially the Titanic? I guess. Sure, good question. Uh, ultimately, I don't think that really resonated with me until uh, after I left Miller Coors. Yeah. I was working, working more at a, a craft brewer and mm-hmm. looking back and seeing how repeatable the processes were and how they were able to get the same beer, the same flavor, uh, time after time after time. And we were dealing with lagers mainly working at Miller Coors, yeah. which are a little bit more of a finesse compared to ales. Mm-hmm. So a little to be trickier, a little more time, little, yeah, so little more everything. <laughs> So to see that uh, over and over again and put out, you know, thousands and thousands of cases into the marketplace, that was pretty incredible. Yeah. And, you know, it is it is an impressive feat with what those two companies can do and just how much beer they can they can put out. And what do you say, twenty five hundred cans a minute, uh, two thousand fifty cans a minute, two thousand fifty cans a minute. Wow. That's the and now at our hilltop facility, we have a, a, a canning line that that runs pretty quick. Do you know what that's running at? Four hundred cans. Four hundred cans a minute. And that's and to me that to me that's really quick, right? Like four hundred cans a minute. That's a lot of beer. And you just think about sort of that dichotomy of where some of the larger craft breweries are at, and then you look at the the you know 
where the the market's at for the 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 macro brewers and what kind of numbers they're doing, and it just sort of it boggles the mind. It, it certainly does. And remind you, this was also back in two thousand eight. Yeah. So, so technology has grown since then. So, I mean, those can line fillers are running even faster these days. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Smarter people than me will probably have to figure out what, what they max out at. <laughs> like how much beer can you make and produce in a day? Right. <laughs> so you're at Miller Coors for a while. You're, you're learned, you sort of got to move from the packaging side to the production side. You see sort of, you're getting sort of that second bit to like the well-rounded brewing jobs, uh, career experience, mm-hmm. right? Correct. So did you move right away to Lagunitas after that? Or was there steps in between? No. In fact, I had a coworker at uh, Miller Coors who had left to join uh, Lagunitas as they were starting to build their uh, Chicago brewery, their second brewery. Yeah. And uh, he had been there just for maybe a half a year. And he reached out to me saying, Chris, I think we have a great role for you. And, uh, it again, it was kind of another leap of fate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked in the macro brewery at a big production facility. Now it was time to take a step down and get more into this craft brewing. At that time, in 2014, craft brewing was going bananas. Yeah. And uh, getting involved with Lagunitas and the build of sh- the second brewery in Chicago was uh, quite eventful. Very, very active, uh, long days. Um, seeing a brewery being built and having a hand in it was pretty special. Yeah. And well, one thing that came to mind is, you know, you're from Iowa. I'm from Illinois. We're from the great flatlands of the middle of the country. Uh, when you, you talk to people sort of about this area, whether it's on the East coast or out in California, I kind of feel like it's not, uh, wholly understood and kind of gets, it's easy to caricature. To, to make a caricature out of the upper Midwest, right? Like a, a whole, you know, Oh, don't you know? And, <laughs> and all that was, was it kind of cool in your mind that this California craft brewery was sort of uh, planting a flag in the middle of the upper Midwest with a, with a kind of like a showcase brewery up there? Yeah, I think so. Uh, California and Lagunitas in general, definitely had a way of going about things Yeah, and trying to take uh, that, uh, that thought, uh, that feel, that theme, and bring it into the Midwest and get a bunch of folks typically that were from the Midwest on board was definitely a unique process for sure. And 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 you had mentioned that you know things were things had to move at a relative relatively fast clip for that for that build out. And you know when I when I think about this time period, you know it, 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 I'm I, I'm hard pressed to figure out another industry in, in recent memory that went through such a you know a sort of rocket ship to the moon as quickly and quickly is relative, right? I mean, we're talking like mid eighties through the, you know, early 2010s when it really started taking off. So it, it had gone through its nascent stage, but really from like 2000 to 2014, it was just like all the way up. And so I guess what I'm trying to round back onto is it had to be like, you guys were just sort of making it up as you were going along. Right. Because you had to, right. There was no blueprint for how you go from like, you know, a small regional craft brewery to now we're building out breweries in the middle of the country and and elsewhere. Yeah. There's definitely some truth to that. 
So when I hired on with uh, Lagunitas, I was the maintenance and engineering manager. Yeah. Uh, so not only was I building out a team, building out a maintenance program, but helping build the brewery, also keeping uh, production running. So we had support from um, our teammates out in Petaluma, but they mm. were also growing like gangbusters as well. Yeah. And, and so with Chicago, and ultimately these breweries were helping Lagunitas get into every state and then get into some other countries. So as fa- as fast as we could produce, it was being shipped out. So from like 2014 until 2018 or 19, it was really the Wild West, uh, doing everything we could just to get production out the door and grow as fast as we could. So, yeah, and it, it sort of mirrors what we went through here at New Glarus too, because, you know, starting up in 93, catching that wave, seeing it grow, you know, of course you have quality product and you have uh, a great way to, to, to get it out to the market eventually. And, and, you know, you find yourself in a position where, wait, we, we're having success. Like, but then with that comes growth and with growth comes expansion and with expansion comes lots of engineering and and building, building projects, which for us kind of are still on ongoing every year. But as you were going through that at at, at Lagunitas, um, and, and it strikes me that, you know, you were at Miller Coors when that merger happens and then you're at Lagunitas too, through, through, um, through a merger as well. Right. That is correct. So, so how how was sort of that whole process for you? Because it had to have felt like just sort of being strapped into like a Ferrari and just someone put a brick on the gas pedal because it's like, all right, we're building it out. It's going, we're shipping, we're going. And then all of a sudden, you know, the suitors start coming in. So in as you know, like around 2019, 2020, things started to really slow down in the craft brewing. Yeah. You weren't growing as much. So my role actually changed and I became more of a, like a maintenance lead for both Paluma and Chicago, trying to get more uh, sustainable, repeatable systems, knowing that we weren't growing as much. Yeah. And then during that same time period, that is when Heineken got involved with Lagunitas. Mm-hmm. And then they started to implement some of their policies. And so I was also working as a liaison with uh, Heineken on trying to implement some of their practices at the Chicago and Petaluma breweries. Did you, uh, did you ever uh, think, man, if I could just get myself over to, to Holland, <laughs> to the, to the, to the mothership brewery. Was there ever like a thought in your head of like, maybe one day they'll, they'll place me over there in Amsterdam. Well, being a worldwide company like Heineken, yeah, yeah definitely those thoughts crossed your mind because they have breweries, I think on every continent. Oh yeah. You know? I mean, you can end up in Japan, like I yeah. think with Heineken maybe. So yes, those uh, thoughts definitely crossed my mind. But during that time, uh, we also had some young children and yeah. Uh, jumping from the United States to some other country. Uh, I'm not sure how high that was really on my wife and I's priority. I, on your to-do list. Yeah. Well, it is funny when you start thinking about, um, you know, brewers and people who work in breweries and sort of uh, find their niche in this industry and, and become sort of specialized in this industry. Uh, you know, I think the the comparison to like the military would begin and end at they, they're sort of expected to, to move around, you know, like if you're coming up in Anheuser-Busch or Miller Coors, it's like, yep, you're going to start in Golden, but eventually you might, you you might end up in St. Louis and that's kind of the, the trajectory, right? But you got to make like 13 stops in between. So when you were thinking about that sort of stuff and, and you were living through mergers and stuff, was it becoming a concern that you might have to go move to a different city and or or get placed somewhere else. Well, I think that's a good segue uh, for why um, leaving Lagunitas and going to, to New Glarus. Yeah. Um, a couple of things were, uh, were unfolding at that time. We had uh, the pandemic was in 
you know, full force. Yeah. Uh, there was a civil unrest uh, gripping the nation. And then also looking uh, at my future at Lagunita slash Heineken, I mean, I believe I was going to be in more and more meetings mm-hmm. and perhaps less time on the floor. And I guess taking a step back, like, did I really want to chase that and get involved with that? Um, I definitely would rather be on the floor using my hands, working with individuals being stuck versus being stuck in meetings or on Zoom calls. Yeah. Yeah. As a person who had to sit through a lot of meetings, they're not fun. They are really not fun. So that was definitely the, the, the some of the drivers of why I looked around to see what else was available. So how did it, uh, how did it come to be that you ended up, ended up here out of, uh, you know, there's a lot of great Midwestern breweries around. There's, uh, you know, whether it's Surly up in Minneapolis or Three Floyds over there. I mean, Three Floyds was just right down, right down the street from you. So what, how did you end up here in New Glarus? Well, a couple of things that my wife and I were thinking about. Uh, we had spent the last 18 to 20 years in big cities between Atlanta, Los Angeles, and Chicago. And we were more looking to I guess raise our children more like a Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer style. Yeah. To uh, get them outside the city, get them in more of a rural feel. So that right there, we were looking for breweries that were in more of the countryside, right? Gotcha. Um, and then the, the brewery also had to be of a certain size. Um, yeah. I'm not going to go and apply my skills at a corner brewery or a nano brewery because they're not going to have a need for my skill set. Well, yeah, and the work's going to run. I mean, if they did, it'll probably be like, well, we need you for the next three months. Some of that. And, and then we're set. <laughs> right. And then uh, a couple of years uh, before, like in 2018, uh, I take in a MBAA course at Madison. Okay. And during that course, Scott, uh, I toured our fine brewery here. Yeah. And I was really smitten by it. It was, a, it was, um, I worked in beer factories. This was yes. a beer cathedral. Oh, I know. Christ, it is. It is so easy to fall in love with this brewery. And it's really funny when you hear Dan and Deb talk and they're like, yeah, first and foremost, we're a, we're a manufacturing facility. And it's like, yeah, you are. And, and that you can definitely tell that, but you can definitely tell someone wanted to be a very pretty manufacturing <laughs> facility. Yeah. And you're spot on with that. So seeing the level of detail, the cleanliness and interacting with a few individuals uh, really uh, put a sharp impression on my mind. Yeah. So when I began the search then in 2020, uh, I just uh, reached out to an individual I'd come across at New Glarus uh, and handed him my resume. Hey, can you forward this on to the right person? Mm-hmm. And then uh, a few weeks later, I got a call by Dan Carey and he <laughs> made me blush while I was talking. That's so, awesome. Uh, and then from there, uh, came and did an interview here, uh, did the, the three day uh, working interview. Mm-hmm. And I started on uh, October 6, uh, 2020. You know, that, that, that has to have been sort of um, an odd change of pace. Cause when you think of like, I, yeah, I don't know who Mr. Coors or Mr. Miller are, but you know what I mean? Like you're playing at Miller Coors. It's not like, you know, Hey, I'm Hank Miller. How you, how you doing? Having Dan give you a call, you know, just to me, it's like, it, it sort of exemplifies how hands-on these guys still are with everyone they're sort of bringing in and how they want their brewery to sort of go. And it'd be, it's really easy to think like, Oh yeah, they're probably just, you know, kind of chilling on it right now, but that really doesn't seem to be the case. That's very true. And the, um, the three day interview was really unique. I had not experienced uh, that in my career where you, you come to a place that you're looking to work. You work for three days with those individuals there. Uh, you get a, f- a flavor for the company and the company gets a feel for you. Yeah. And then those individuals that you work with then give the input to the hiring folks, whether it's a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Um, and then 
for me in that being in that position, it was really unique getting to interact with everybody and, and seeing how things are done. And it really uh, solidified that, yes, I do want to come work at, at New Glarus. And luckily it worked out for me. That's a great story. And I love hearing about the, the sort of the three days. And one of the, the reasons I do is because, you know, w- what becomes clear when you talk to Dan and Deb is just how sort of working class the two of them are because they came up they came up from that you mm-hmm. know what i mean they you know deb was very talks about her time as, as a, a, a person cleaning bathrooms and, and things like that living in her trailer and and choosing between food and and uh medicine and 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 all of that and when you hear stories of companies like bringing people on for a trial thing you know it's often like uh yeah, lunch will be provided. You'll get a cup of coffee. And, uh, you know, if it works out, you'll get your first, you know, you might get it detected on as back pay or maybe not, but you know, you want the opportunity. So you come in and you sort of give your labor away. The three days here are all paid and you know, you, you get what you would get if you, if you would get the job. And if you don't, I'm from what I'm to understand, they'll cut you your check and, and there, and there you go. And I always thought, you know, it just highlights something about them that I think can't be overstated is that those little details on how they treat people matter, you know, a hundred percent. That's a great way of putting it, you know? And I think, you know, when you come into a place that's obviously going to take care of you, even if it doesn't work out, you think I I can feel good about working there or, you know, I feel good about even not getting the job. They took care of me, whatever. So, so you come here do you remember what your first project was a couple of years ago? I know you, you basically came in and then we went right into COVID, right? Like, well, I came in during the, the throes of COVID. Okay. Yeah. But the main project that I was working on when I started here was to uh, displace a uh, antiquated case packer on our hilltop bottle line. Gotcha. And put in a, a newer case packer along with some new conveyance. Very, very cool. And as I said, there's been a couple bathroom projects, expansions along the way, but the last time we had you on the podcast, you were, it was you and Dan and you guys were talking about getting the can line up and running at Riverside. And this was going to be a new addition for us. And this seemed like it was a really involved project and that you were sort of like, uh, you know, right in the middle of all that. So having the can line sort of be something that you were able to sort of take a central role in, how's, how's it going now that we've had a few brews come off of it? I think 30th anniversary is the first followed by strawberry rhubarb and then, um, scream, scream. Yeah. And then I believe uh spotted cow grand crew is coming up next. Spotted cow grand crew. I think it's going to be maybe only in cans. Don't quote me on that. Maybe cans and bottles, but I think maybe only in cans. So how's, how's it running? Are are you still, is everything still sort of getting ironed out or is it like just off to the races and we're, we're doing, we're doing numbers. (laughs) Well, first and foremost, uh, those four products that you mentioned, uh, we met the production schedule. Nice. So we get the product out. It was at a high quality. Uh, so that's first and foremost. Yeah. Uh, this line at uh, Riverside, the can line, uh, doesn't get as many hours on as compared to our hilltop uh, bottle line and can line. Yeah, it's got to be a workhorse. So uh, our team, our operations team is still definitely getting to know the equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that'll be a process that'll take years to to, to, to really uh, build that foundation on. Yeah. Uh, but so far, uh, where the equipment seems to be responding well, we're able to uh, meet our production uh, demands and we're able to get these new products in a new uh, vessel into mm-hmm. the marketplace that we didn't have before. You know, and that's that that is really cool. And I like the way you, you, you you're talking about that. And it, and it hadn't occurred to me before, but, you know, of course, it would take someone years to sort of tune, could become in tune with this piece of equipment. And I think, you know, there's a 
you know, there's sort of this pull and I don't know what it is culturally or whatever to, um, you know, think of labor as bifurcated between skilled labor and unskilled labor. Right. And, you know, you always hear growing up, it's like, well, you don't want to end up just in a factory pushing a button and, you know, but having seen people work those jobs, they're highly skilled. Without a doubt. Working a packaging line, working a printing press, working these, these machines, it's like learning a musical instrument. You need to know exactly how that thing's going to respond when you do anything, right? Like, otherwise, you know, you you have the state short on spotted cow and no one can have that. Sure. So from uh, my my role or my position, ultimately I'm trying to enable our our brewers to be able to run that process or to run that equipment. So getting the equipment in and getting installed, that's, that's a part of the equation, but there's so much more to it. Mm -hmm. So pairing up our brewers with the uh, manufacturers reps that are here on site to teach them how to operate the the equipment, making sure that we have the proper documentation available so that when they do have questions or need to look something up, that it's readily available, Mm -hmm. making sure we have the proper maintenance programs in place so that we can keep that equipment in a pristine state and keep it running. These are all uh, items that'll help that brewer better understand that machine and run that machine for, for years to come. And so, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I know when you guys buy new equipment, sort of routinely people get sent places to get trained on it. Did that happen with you or did they train you on it here? How did that, that work? So, uh, it was a twofold. Yeah. Uh, Dan, on one of his trips uh, to Europe, he stopped by um, one of the OEMs for the uh, filler and the seamer. And mm-hmm. he had a conversation there and he saw it in production. Here in the state side, uh, myself and a couple of folks, we went out to Boston to take a look at a piece of equipment uh, that we had purchased. And we did a, a factory acceptance test out there. Gotcha. So that was uh, building that ownership with the brewers right there at that time. And they were able to carry that over back to the Riverside Brewery and then spread that knowledge, that wealth to the other uh, team members. Yeah. And that's one of the things I really love about this place is just watching, you know, a kernel of information just sort of get disseminated around. Right. Because as we learn new things, you know, it just, it just all gets sort of, uh, it just all becomes part of the stew. Right. Like, and, and nobody seems very precious about like, this is my corner of this and only I can know these things. Cause then Oh, gee, what if somebody else learns it? And then maybe I'm not so needed anymore, but it's never, it never seems like that's any danger around here. It's all about, you know, is spreading stability through knowledge. It seems like. Yeah. Well, you just explained there, Scott, at the start of this project, we had a little bit of that because we we could only afford to have certain individuals with the manufacturers at the start of the project. But since that time, then we are, we are adding more and more brewers uh, to, to attain that knowledge from their teammates. Cause ultimately you can't have everybody out there at once. Oh no, you can't just be like, they were sending the 140 people off to, off to Boston. Right. But those five people that received that initial training, now they're spreading it to the greater team within their department. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, yeah, that's, that's absolutely the way it, you know, kind of should be. And I think it, it's ultimately one of the many reasons why this, this place has been as stable <laughs> as it sort of has been. Um, but in this 30th, you know, anniversary year, we've talked a lot about how busy it was on the brewing schedule. Like, you know, we put out, you know, just a slate of new beers. We had a slate of returning favorites. And of course that was on top of our just regular, these are going to be our year rounds. These are going to be our fruit beers, like the, the, the fixed points in the schedule. Right. That being said on the project side, 
like we said, you guys put in a can line. You also, you guys also facilitated a, a warehouse build. So, you know, these were two big projects in a very busy year. How was negotiating brewing, brewing schedules and shipping schedules? And, and cause when you're thinking about a new warehouse, you're thinking about, okay, is this going to disrupt, uh, ship is this going to disrupt putting cases on trailers for distributors so how does how does you know sort of uh choreographing that dance work out for you guys on the project side uh good question scott so this year yes we had the uh, can line this spring and then in late summer going into fall we started uh to work on our latest warehouse expansion yeah i like how we have to you you have to specify which one (laughs) and then here in the last uh, month or so we've also started another major uh, undertaking with the seller automation project as far as the warehouse uh, disrupting uh, operation that was a build-on so we were able to continue to ship out as we normally would Mm -hmm. Uh, this is something that's going to be an add-on so it's going to allow for more volume of our raw materials to come in gotcha and the 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 automation thing or the, the yeah, the automation. The, the, the seller automation, yeah. that's the one that took a little bit more choreographing yeah. with the operations group. We had to plan this accordingly because ultimately we were going to take some of our fermenters out of service so that they could be automated. Yeah. And, and, but, oh, by the way, we're going to keep production running, you know, during that time. Because <laughs> so, it turns out people still need fermented beverages. <laughs> especially here in Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, so that was where we had to really work hand in hand the, uh, engineering team, the maintenance team, the automation team, and the operations group, and also the uh, the, the production scheduling team. Because we had to all be in lockstep uh, because of this major undertaking, losing all those fermenters for, you know, a period of time. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like the, the, you know, the, the brick is still on the gas pedal for you, for you guys. And for you and your career, it seems like the brick is still on the gas pedal. It, it, it does feel that way. But um, as long as you put the right amount of effort up front and you have the right amount, the right team with you, um, we're, we're taking these challenges on and, and we're getting the results that we want. So it, it feels good. And, you know, without disclosing anything that is not supposed to be disclose, disclosable, what's, uh, what's the next year looking like for you, the next future? Is there more projects, more things to think about? What's, what's going on with you? Well, uh, for the engineering group, we're always looking at ways that we can uh, drive down our utility consumption, be mm-hmm. more sustainable. We're always looking at ways that we can improve the reliability of the equipment. Um, we also have some major projects uh, that are in the works. Uh, we're looking to take the seller automation projects, which started this year, and it carries over into next year and even the year after that. So that's a multi-tiered uh, project. We're also looking at perhaps some future expansions within the, the complex, but we'll tackle those at some other time. And uh, another thing I wanted to, to bring up with you uh, is, oh, I must I think it's Emily said six or seven years now since we started the employee stock option program. And you are one of the uh, uh, employee officers of that. Is, is that correct? Or how, how does that terminology go? Well, you're switching gears pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, um, I was uh, selected to be one of the ESOP trustees. So okay. myself and two others uh, form um, a trio then that looks out for the betterment of uh, the employee owners for the brewery. Gotcha. So, so I've been around three years. So I, th- think that means I'm vested maybe. Correct. I'm, I am vested? Yep. Awesome. So I think I own like a little uh, piece of the leg of the cow at this point. I, I'm not sure how, how it all works. It's funny with money stuff, like, uh, like people like, uh, you know, 
my wife will have set up like uh, people to come to the house to like repair stuff or whatever. And they'll inevitably come to me for like money stuff or like, how's this supposed to be? I'm like, you, you, you don't know. I have no idea. Like you should ask the person who called you because I have no idea. So with the ESOP stuff, I'm just like in my head, I conceptualize it as like, uh, oh, it's the, it, it'll keep getting added to, I'll add some, I'm not sure how much, but eventually at some point the, the, it'll just start coming back the other way. Well, ultimately, it's another investment that our employees have the opportunity to get involved with. Gotcha. And we encourage everyone to get involved with because you become an employee owner. Yeah. You have more stake in the game, more ownership. Ultimately, when you put um, a certain percentage towards your 401k, your personal 401k, mm-hmm. the company matches a certain percentage into your ESOP gotcha. fund. And then that ESOP fund will continue to grow. And then when you decide to retire or leave the company, then you'll be able to get uh, that that portion of funds which you didn't put your own money into, the company matched it, which is just a, a great, it's another great win for the new Glarus Brewing Company. There are so many perks and benefits for working here, and this is definitely yeah. one of the, of the items that rises to the top. Well, yeah, and it's and it was funny. I was talking to Scott Knoll on, on the podcast like a, a week or so ago, and he was talking about the new communications teams uh, that get formed around just sharing information around the brewery and and making sure everybody's sort of on the same page. And and with the ESOP stuff, it's like, uh, you know, when questions always come up of like, well, how do they maintain their, you know, their employee retention? How do they, you know how do they maintain this sort of stuff? It's like, well, it's, it's that stuff. It's, it's not, you know, it's coming from a place of like, Hey, you know what? We're all here to do well and we're all going to be able to do fine. And nobody's going to really be looking to do better than anyone else based on just, you know, keeping somebody either in the dark or not providing them an opportunity. It seems like it's all very, it seems like all like, and they, they say flat management and I truly, I think I know what that means, but that ethos seems to permeate everything. It seems to be working out pretty well. I would agree with that. Uh, I've been with some great companies up until New Glarus, but New Glarus here really sets the bar very high and I'm very proud to be uh, an employee owner. Well, I, you know, I am too. I, I'm, I'm feeling my, you know, I'm going to hang up that certificate and I'm going to put it right on my office while it's been leaned up against uh, some books on my bookshelf for a while. I think I'll have to, I'll, I'll have to sacrifice a nail for, for that one. So Chris, when I get uh, team members in here, I, I always like to kind of finish off uh, asking them about what kind of beer they, they enjoy drinking, what they look to get in their glass when they're just out for, you know, a pizza or a nice meal with their loved ones. So what, what are you enjoying these days? Well, I'm really pleased uh, with the catalog that uh, New Glarus offers. It yes. has a, a wide range, mm-hmm. and I really enjoy that. Uh, first and foremost, Staghorn is uh, my uh, favorite here oh, such at a good New beer. Glarus. Such a good beer. Um, and then followed up by, I like uh, Two Women, uh, Cabin Fever. Uh, the Pilsner that we put out this past summer was yeah, excellent. It was, yeah. So those so are the ones I, I normally uh, lean towards. Uh, but then again, uh, sometimes like after I have a meal, uh, almost like as an aperitif, I like to have one of like our Serendipity mm-hmm. or our Belgian Red. Uh, th- those are so tasteful. Um, it really, uh, I don't know, warms the palate. It, it really, really does. And you're absolutely right. Having, having a, like, you know, in lieu of a dessert, having like a Belgian Red always sort of hits, hits me kind of, kind of right lately. I think last night I, I I did this once before and, uh, it was like, I, I was done. I was done for the night, right? The kid, the kid had gone to sleep and, and all that stuff. And it's like, all right. Yeah. I'm sit down, watch some TV. I had a scotch ale and I was like, that tastes really good. I'm gonna have another one. And I had another scotch ale and I was like, yeah, that's really good. And now I think I've had 
my fill of scotch ale, <laughs> like not forever, but for right now, for sure. tonight, I should not go for scotch ale number three. Cause that is going to end up in a, and well, it'd probably just end up in me going to sleep right then, you know, like, uh, sure. and get a solid eight after, <laughs> after that. Well, Chris, thank you very much for your time. I, I really, really do appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to all the cool things you and the, the projects team got cooking up for the next year. And from what I am, to, uh, from what I am to understand beyond that as well. So for sure. Yep. We got a lot going on. Have a good one, Chris. Thanks, Scott.